the girlfriend I had in Cuba had her story and uh, her ex-partner came after both of us with a knife and we had to um, had to leave Cuba or leave Havana late one night into the countryside, uh, basically for our physical safety. After seeing endemic violence against women all around him, this social entrepreneur went on a 20-year journey to find a solution to help protect women against violence. From Blue Tribe Media, this is the Good Business Podcast, the show where we talk to business leaders, social entrepreneurs and innovators about aligning profit with purpose and how you can make doing good, good for business. Now here's your host, James McGregor. In this episode, I talk with Jeremy Meltzer from I Equals Change. Now, Jeremy is a social entrepreneur and advocate for women's rights globally. He created I Equals Change to help accelerate the impact of extraordinary development projects focused on empowering women and girls. Now, as you'll hear in this episode, as a young man, Jeremy was moved to action while living in Cuba, where he was shocked at how violence against women seemed accepted and was even considered normal in some communities. This started him on a 20-year journey, which ultimately led to the creation of I Equals Change that is weaving philanthropy into everyday purchases. From refugee camps to retail leadership summits, Jeremy shares a journey that has crossed continents. We discuss disruptive models of business, the business of giving back, Now, investing in women and girls will be the greatest drivers of growth and stability this century. So, so take us back in time a little um, to where this passion for you know trying to address women's rights globally. Where where did this all start, and where where does this passion come from? It uh, it goes back actually over twenty years now. I was. uh, I was living in um, Cuba. I went there as a 21-year-old to uh, kind of have an adventure and, uh, I guess, the experience of a lifetime and ended up spending four months there and living with the community. Uh, I had a Cuban girlfriend and had a kind of quite amazing access into Cuba at a time when no tourists went there. And uh, I started to notice outside of the... The, the salsa and, and, and the spirit and the, the Caribbean, there was a, a dark side to the, to the reality, which was almost every woman I met or spoke to had a story of violence when speaking about her husband or partner or ex-boyfriend. And I was just shocked at how every woman had a story and every woman thought it was the most normal thing in the world. That's the, it's just what men do is what they would often say. And so where I come from, indeed where most of us come from, in, in, even though it's a huge issue in Australia, it is, uh, it is at least illegal here, but uh, I had no idea the extent of men's violence against women and how pervasive it was. And so that sparked me off on what's really been a 20-year journey now of uh, trying to understand what I call the ancient issue of our time. Uh, and uh, I've been meeting with NGOs and development experts uh, in Australia and around the world uh, to really try to understand the, uh, this enormously complex issue. Of, of course, it's sort of it's been thrust into the public imagination with the Me Too campaign over the last eighteen months. Uh, but alongside climate change, it is one of the most uh, defining issues of our time. And uh, and I've decided I wanted to, in, in a small way, in the best way I possibly could. Uh, to try to do something about it. And, and so was there a, like a, a particular moment or a particular story when you're talking to someone that sort of got you uh, so fired up that you decided you had to act? There were many moments. Uh, and the girlfriend I had in Cuba had her story and uh, her 
ex-partner came after both of us uh, with a knife and we had to um, had to leave Cuba or leave Havana uh, late one night into the countryside uh, basically for our physical safety. I mean, I think that seared itself into my sort of collective imagination as a um, an experience of what it must be like for women to go through this on a regular basis or to be fleeing a violent man. Uh, I've... I've known women who've had their cars shot at by uh, ex-husbands uh, and and come down to see that car like kind of uh, that day to see what's happened. I mean, just thinking how, how men's propensity for violence. I've seen it all across the developing world, uh, women's bruised and battered bodies. I've heard the stories. Uh, and I think what men don't realise is that one act of violence which can come in many forms it's not only physical it's sexual it's it's emotional it can be financial this is almost always seared into her into her consciousness as something she has to live with for the rest of her life and so there's many many moments that i've been almost moved to tears uh and I've just wondered, you know, how the hell has this been allowed to go on for thousands of years? And of course, you know, men are suffering as also under the, the versions of masculinity and uh, that, that traps them in this idea of what it means to be a man. And so it, it is indeed a, a complex issue. So, so yeah, I know I've, I've discussed this with my wife occasionally. I think as a as a man, you know, when, when I get in my car in a public space, I don't check the back seat or if I'm walking down the street in the dark, I'm not. Now, the thought process doesn't even go through my mind to look over my shoulder uh, and to be uh, you know, fearful for my safety. So so I think this is like a really important issue for men to understand and, and try to put themselves in that headspace around you know, what impacts these sorts of acts can have on women. Yeah, you, you make a, a really good point and example. I mean, we don't fear being sexually abused on a daily basis. It's just not, not something we're conscious of because it, it is almost... It's almost not going to happen. Whereas women have been taught, uh, rightly so, that there's you know a dozen things they need to do on each day in order to be safe, from how they dress to where they walk to what time they get home to where they jog to uh, who, who they're walking with at night. I mean, it is extraordinary that level of privilege that we have in such a basic thing uh, around just how women don't feel safe even walking around the streets by themselves yeah yeah so so once you, you know, you've identified this issue while you're living in cuba and you uh, i guess been moved to try to do something about it. i mean what, what was the first thing that you did where did where did you start yeah it's a good question i didn't really know where to start i i then lived in miami for a few years and also living with and working with the latin american community there and heard so many stories and I, it was just a big, a big piece of that was missing in my education. Like I just, you know, I hadn't studied gender and, but I just, I guess, believed that I could over time begin to uh, get a grasp on some of this issue. And, and to me, it made sense to reach out to the not-for-profit space. I mean, the, the organizations that have been doing that direct service delivery uh, and have been on, you know, doing it for, for many, many years on the ground. And so I, made contact with uh, NGOs and, and impact leaders who, are, who I think are the heroes of our time. I mean, the people who are some of the most extraordinary people I meet continuously are those that are 
deeply engaged in creating social change and have committed their life to it. Uh, and to me, th- these are the people that should be on the fronts of magazines, not models and singers, because uh, they're extraordinary. And 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 through them, I, I started to learn. You know, I listened and I travelled to the developing world, and I sat amongst communities and I took notes. And I just over time started to get a sense of how profound and complex and, and, and ancient this issue is. And of course, one of the things that stood out for me was that all these organizations need money. And often a small amount of money can go a long way, especially in the developing world. So coming from a somewhat entrepreneurial family, I, I thought, you know, how could business become part of the solution? How could uh, we make a difference uh, using business? And this was before, I mean, I'd never even heard the term social entrepreneur. Um, I just sort of had this sense of like, there's got to be a way that the, the for-profit world, which is all about making money and, and in, in many cases, significant profits that are, that end up uh, in shareholders' uh, pockets and, and C-suite. There's got to be a way to uh, diversify uh, the measure of success. And, of course, this has now sort of exploded into one of the fastest-growing movements in business, which is about business for purpose and, and social enterprise and how business can be um, actively pursuing the triple bottom line in a way that engages all its stakeholders, not just shareholders. Uh, and so it's, it's a very, I'd say, exciting time to be, to be involved in the work that we're doing uh, and, and, and very much fast moving and, uh, and dynamic and, uh, and, uh, and interesting, very interesting. So, so take me back to the, the origin story of I equals change. Like, you know, wh- where did the idea come from and uh, what were you doing and what, what sort of sparked that uh, bit of inspiration to start this uh, enterprise? So I was living in New York uh, at the time and this was uh, over seven years now. Uh, and I, Dad and I started this little olive oil business. Uh, we've got a little property in, in uh, outside of Melbourne and... So I'd started promoting uh, our family oil, Yellingbo, in New York, kind of as the first Aussie olive oil in the States. And I'd been visiting a lot of these NGOs uh, that work with women and girls, both in New York and Washington, which is kind of ground zero where the NGOs are focused on this space. And I just had one of those ideas. I thought, what if we could bring these two worlds together? It, it, it was, you know, I think we, we've probably all had those ideas about three in the morning, they wake you up and... Uh, you know, most of the time you should just go back to sleep and forget about it. Uh, this one was just really simple. And, and the next morning I, I thought, oh, shit, this could be really interesting. This could be – I've got no idea how to execute it or where to even start. But I just thought, what if we could somehow use our family business, our little Yellingbo website where we sold olive oil, to give back to some of these – NGOs that I'd been meeting with that all needed more money to do their work. And so, and I thought, but more than that, what if we could somehow build a platform so that our customers could choose where it goes? So we flipped the model. I thought, instead of asking our customers to make a donation, what if we committed the donation as a business? And one of the other areas of um, that I, I saw and felt could be improved was that, you know, typically when brands have given back to 
charities, it's it's quote unquote, it is, you know, it, it's often very well meaning, but it's not transparent and no one knows what it means. Like 1% of profits doesn't really mean anything. Uh, or 1% of proceeds or 10% of this for one item. I mean, it just hasn't ever been baked into a brand as a deep ongoing commitment to being a, a force for good in that respect. And so I thought, what if we could give a round amount, a dollar, uh, everyone understands what that is, what if our customers could choose where it goes, and the idea was also what if we could use digital tools to show with 100% transparency how much we're raising and where it's going and the impact that it's having. So that was the sort of the genesis of, of a simple idea, but you know, zero tech background, I, st I still have zero tech background to be honest, but uh, I guess uh, that I've sort of remained very stubborn over the last several years to, to build what we have with a, with a wonderful team. Uh, but that was the, that was the genesis of it. It's uh, I saw I saw a problem, and and what was interesting that we, when we we really got a very clunky version of it up on our site a few months later, and we had a great response from our customers, you know, an increase in, in engagement and people buying, and much more than I expected. So tell so tell me uh, what what was that first iteration? Yeah, you mentioned this clunky version. What what was it? How did it work? Oh well, it, it looked a bit like a cartoon. Looking back, it was kind of. Um, you know, they, they talk about, you know, minimal viable product. I think this was very minimal. Um, had to probably barely pass as minimal, but it kind of worked. And uh, initially we had like, because I wanted to support everyone. I think there was like six or seven choices and a little radio button where a customer could choose where it went. And, and then it led them to another page where they could donate further. But even that sort of simple iteration, uh, we had that great response from from customers, which made me think, hold on, could there be something here? Could this be something we could build into a solution for other retailers to also make it easy for them to give back? And and, and that's where it went from there. Yeah. And so so you've developed a minimum viable product and you've seen some you know, good response from customers. Um, you know, what did you do next and what was the probably the hardest thing about that next step? Oh, look, it was really around the, the technology. I mean, you know, for anyone who's involved in a startup, it's just, you can relate. I mean, you've got like zero budget. Uh, you know, I went to India, uh, let's just say uh, that didn't work. Um, and it, 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 I mean, the next stage was to just build a, a minimum viable product that other brands could use. Uh, so I reached out to some people I knew who knew people who knew people who knew retailers and uh, eventually uh, spoke to a female entrepreneur and she was like, oh, love it, let's just try it on my site. Uh, and uh, so we had kind of the first customer to, to try it and, uh, and that, was really, that really enabled us to, to test and learn and make a lot of the mistakes and, and to her credit, she stuck with us as we made those mistakes. And uh, that enabled us, enabled us to raise the first first several thousand dollars for, for the projects, and and we also we started evolving it. So instead of six projects, we worked out that three was the best option. That we didn't overwhelm customers with choice, and um, started to look at what are the best NGOs and, and how does that look? What's the methodology around who we partner with and why, and why is that important? And and looked at began to understand how if we could do that due diligence piece on the not-for-profit, that would be also a meaningful part of the service we provide because this is a really complex space and the brands really appreciate the fact that they can choose uh, 
from the 33 projects we have and know that we have vetted and visited them and know that the money has, is going to have the greatest impact. So we started working on that piece and then started building out on the technology and the database and, you know, what went from, you know, writing things down on, on a Word document to actually building a database. And so, I mean, very much an iterative process. Um, and I, I guess the big the big day came where we we had it working and it was about really doubling down and coming up with a beautiful design, which I knew how important that would be. Uh, and I knew that we had to create something that was just extraordinarily simple. And especially if we were going to resonate with a lot of the high-end brands and big retailers, which we'd, we've now been able to attract, that this, had th- this thing had to look beautiful as well. And I knew that intuitively and... So that was kind of a whole other story. I, I, I think I almost sold my car. Well, actually, I nearly did to be able to pay this designer who had done... It was actually a, a guy from um, from the Netherlands who had just had a beautiful design aesthetic, and he was living in Sydney at the time. He'd done a lot of work with, with, with Virgin and, and a bunch of tech brands, and, it just, and I just knew when I came across him that he was the man. But he was extremely expensive, and so... Eventually, you know, we did it, negotiated and, and did a deal and, and that kind of enabled us to build the site which we now have and the, and the solution. Uh, and from there, that was sort of um, the impetus of a, a lot of our growth. And was that at that stage, did you still have just the one customer or had you grown to a, a, a larger, let's call it the beta test group? Yeah, I mean, we had the early, some early adopters, probably around 10 at that point. Uh, but it's still, I mean, it was a one-man show. I mean, I was trying to do everything uh, between, you know, attract customers and, and sort of get the tech built, uh, do the design. So everything happened slowly. Uh, but I knew that the what was facing the public had to be beautifully designed and really simple. And, and look, that's paid off. I mean, for anyone listening, I just think design is so important. Uh, and you know we're, we're all visual creatures and the branding the design and uh god knows we've changed our, we've changed our logo probably five or six times uh and i look back now and we all collectively laugh at uh, what it used to look like but uh yeah it's uh, it was really important to get that right and, and that was definitely um definitely a good investment yeah and, and so you uh at this stage, you were you were aiming to target like sort of larger, um, you know, well-known brands. Is that was that your plan for path to market? Yeah, the goal was to just keep getting brands on board that we could get uh, case studies. I also intuitively felt that this would be increasing engagement and conversions for online retailers. Uh, I just didn't have the skills and know how to all the kind of the bandwidth to kind of work out how to do that. So only in the last the last several months, we've brought on board a fantastic customer success person, you know, um, MBA in marketing, and she's been able to work with a lot of our brands to actually start to leverage their giving and, and share the stories of giving across their acquisition campaigns, their funnel, their post-purchase uh, storytelling. And we've been able to, to, to prove now how it's actually using data. And that's what's exciting. We're bringing these two worlds together which I, I think would be the first time we're proving now that actually a brand can give back, which has always been seen as a cost, a quote-unquote a donation, and actually it's unlocking new revenue for them. So we've really been looking at it 
through a, a business lens of how do we prove that this is a meaningful part of your marketing. It's not a nice to have, but it's a must have. And we're starting to get that data now. And to your question, that's definitely helped us unlock a lot of the, the larger brands uh, by having those case studies and data showing that actually this is this is good for your business. You must do this. And we're just reaching a really critical point. Uh, in, I mean, in the history of retail, my from what I hear and sense and you know, people who work with retailers and the retailers themselves, I mean, there's just not a lot of new ideas coming out of retail. Um, so just for, just for clarity as well, so the way it works, it, so it's working like an e-commerce store, you're getting to the checkout, you've made a purchase, and then this pops up in front of the customer saying, hey, by the way, look, we, we donate a dollar to these worthy causes, please pick the one. Is that is that basically how the product works? Yeah, basically it, it appears post-purchase, so it doesn't add an extra step. It's on the thank you page, post-purchase it appears, and it becomes the customer's final experience so that the brand gives back, and they can choose where it goes. And we're getting a really high engagement rate, like on average 50 to 60 or even more percent of people are choosing where to send the donation. It's it's hard to get 5% of people to do anything online. So 50 to 60% is huge, especially post-purchase. So customers really care. And at that point, they can then, they can add their, a donation of their own uh, and or track the impact. And so we host for each brand that idea about full transparency uh, that it links to a live giving page for the brand where you can see how much you've helped raise with your purchase and who's behind the brand and the impact that it's having so that's been really cool and the brands seem to love that because their staff love it staff love you know seeing a tick up it kind of gamifies it internally from what i hear it's become a uh, i mean all these things we didn't expect like it's become a way to attract and retain great staff uh, brands are saying, oh, staff are coming to us, potential staff, that we'd love to work for you because we see that you actually do give back with every sale and it's transparent. Um, and so that's become a really key part of the functionality, that that real-time transparency. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, we're helping brands build that message into their into the homepage. Uh, like one of our big, biggest brands, National Tiles, for example, if you go to the homepage, you can see uh, in the footer, it's showing how much they're raising insight uh, and a number of the brands and little pop-ups and just ways to remind customers along the journey of their purchase that if they do happen to buy, their choice will equal change. And uh, and that's where it's also having that flow-on effect for the benefits for, for the brand themselves. Yeah, great. So, so one of the things with running these social enterprises is that, you know, we need resources to deliver on the impact that we want to deliver. Um, so you, know, you need to get the lights on. So to tell me a little bit about the business model and, and you know, how do you generate revenue and how do you actually you know, create the resources to uh, deliver on these great impacts? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I, I, I feel it leads to a, a larger and an equally important point is that you know, we can't create the change we wish to see unless we're also operating within the structures that make that possible. So what I mean by that is that if you're wanting to run, quote unquote, a social enterprise, unless it's profitable, you're not going to be able to create impact or pay staff or, as you say, turn the lights on and or keep them on. And, and you know, it's interesting. The There's, there's kind of like a, a different set of rules. It's like for-profit businesses don't talk about turning the lights on as if it's something they have to justify. But in the impact space, there is still that expectation that 
if you are making a profit, it's somehow a negative thing, which is so problematic. I mean, it hampers growth, it hampers impact, it hampers the change that people are wanting to see. It's like we are, we have this visceral reaction to uh, not-for-profits paying their staff a decent salary and hiring and attracting great people, but we don't have the same metric or lens when we apply to the, the, the to people working for for-profit businesses as if somehow that is, um, uh, it's none of our business. Uh, you know, if we just look at organisations and judge them on the impact that they're having rather than quote-unquote the overheads, then isn't that the thing we're wanting them to have rather than worrying about how much is taken out of the dollar? So to be clear about that, I mean, we, we're a for-profit business which enables us to grow and scale and even attract investment. We partner with the not-for-profits. We give 100% of the donations that we receive, which is always really important ethically for us. In order to do that, we charge the brands an additional fixed fee per transaction. And that largely gets absorbed by the tax deduction that they receive on the dollar donation. And at the end of the day, it it cost them around after the tax deduction around a dollar in total uh, uh, after that deduction. And so that enables us to give 100% of that uh, of that dollar. And so that's a really simple model we came up with in the early days, which um, really works well from everyone's perspective. But I think that. For people starting social businesses, there has to be a financial and a, uh, a scalable revenue model. Otherwise, it's just not going to uh, it's not going to exist. It's not going to take off. It's not going to grow, and it's not going to have the impact that uh, that we want to see. Yeah, I, I think you raise a really good point there. We we are very much pro uh, this idea of you know, a sustainable business is sustainable both financially as well as delivering on the impacts that it wants, and that you know, if you're I think people perceive this idea of profit and purpose uh, like an, on two ends of a, of a spectrum, um, but in actual fact, they're mutually supportive. Uh, and I think social entrepreneurs or social enterprises that have this fear of uh, profit, uh, even if you're not for profit, and not, in my view, a not-for-profit doesn't mean no profit because without profit, you can't sustain your mission. Um, but you know, it's almost like fighting with one hand tied behind your back because the for-profit sector doesn't have any of those constraints on spending money on marketing and um, social campaigns and engaging customers, um, which is why they can scale. So if you think if you you should social enterprise should be held to the same standard uh, as any for profit business. Yeah, a hundred percent. What seems to happen is people move into this space with a lot of passion and a lot of energy, and sometimes there isn't the kind of really rigorous business background that is required for an organization to be sustainable. And not that I had that experience myself. I mean, it's definitely been a lot of learnings and mistakes and failures and just getting up again along the way. But I would urge anyone to think, okay, if you want to create the... I had this moment and I was standing uh, in Brooklyn with an amazing guy called Gordon Weiss who used to be... He was actually the first guy flown in to the uh, Banda Aceh after the tsunami. And he was working for... He was a communications manager for UNICEF at the time. And he just come back from there, and I'd been in the region and, and helped a bit after the tsunami. And I remember um, I said to him, Gordon, you know, what do you think I can do in order? I, you know, I want to be useful. Uh, I want to be of service. And he said, Look, you know, you can be the next person who flies into the next disaster zone, and that's great, but your impact is going to be minimal. Or start a business, make it profitable, and make extraordinary impact. And and that really 
that really stuck with me. I mean, there was this moment we were standing saying goodbye to each other under the full moon on, on, on the corner of a street in Brooklyn, and that just simple but profound in, in how it resonated with me. I thought, yes, that's what I need to do. That makes total sense. Start an enterprise that exists for purpose, make it as profitable as you can so we can scale responsibly and so it can be sustainable. And in doing so, because we're purpose first and mission driven, we can create extraordinary change by by responsibly and and uh, with as much uh, clear methodology and best practice work, we can create sustainable change by working with amazing not-for-profit partners. And I mean, what what's interesting we're seeing now, and I, I think we're going to see a wholesale shift in this in the next three to five years. In that, you know, every business can become a social enterprise, and every business I feel will. No, I feel like, I mean, we're starting to see it. We'll have to become some form of a social business in that it also has a clear and committed purpose, whether it be to create social and or environmental change, uh, because it's being demanded now by customers. So, you know, business and retail in this traditional sense is increasingly becoming less relevant because we're all shopping with our values more than ever before. And we're wanting to buy from brands that reflect the world we wish to see. Most brands now do not reflect the world we wish to see. In fact, it, it, they're driven only by profit. Their supply chains are opaque at best. And, um, you know, they, they're wanting to do good in the world, but it just there hasn't been the mechanisms and the clarity and enough other businesses doing it for them to understand what is this wholesale shift and how do they do it well. And so I see in the next three to five businesses this tipping point and I could change is really driving this in, 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 uh, in Australia in the e-commerce space at the moment in that in order to remain relevant, every business must give back with every sale and be on the journey to becoming part of the solution, not part of the problem. What we're seeing, and, and I understand how challenging it is, like businesses don't know where to start on this like, and there is no silver bullet. And I, and I say, you know, just just begin somewhere. Be on the journey. Communicate with your customers that this is the change you want to create, and you're not always going to get it right, but you're committed to it over the long term. And you know, as consumers, we all resonate with that. I mean, it's human, it's authentic. We hear of, uh, from the voice of the founders saying that you know we want to be a, a responsible business, and the businesses that are doing that, and with 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 that clarity and authenticity, are the ones that are going to thrive over time. And and already we're seeing the brands that do this well are, are significantly more profitable than those that don't do it at all. And so as that message permeates into the broader business community, I think we're going to see some profound wholesale change in this space. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think uh, particularly the uh, the millennial generation as they move into the uh, consumption phase of their life, um, they'll be very demanding uh, of brands on how to uh, making sure that these brands are giving back and aligning with you know, their customers' values and what their customers actually want to want to see happen in the world. So, hundred percent agree. What does I equal change look like today? So, yeah, we we started with an idea, and you know, it's obviously grown. You know, what, what what does it look like? Well, it's all hundred percent transparent. So, if people go to equalchange.com, we've got over one hundred twenty brands. We've raised almost one point five million dollars. Uh, one dollar at a time. Uh, it's ticking along. That's li- as a live counter as as the sales happen. Uh, that ticks up. We're growing our team. 
we're working towards our second uh, inaugural Shop for Change event, which is on International Women's Day next year, where Australians can buy from Eichel Change brands who will mostly be giving back $5 instead of $1 for the 24 hours over International Women's Day. So that's a way that Australians can really uh, make that change and, and, and effectively shop for change. Uh, we're going to start to promote the site next year as a new marketplace for people to find and shop brands that give back. So it's also kind of a, a, a B2C place. Um, and so there's a lot of exciting things that we're working on. We're always in a state of being overwhelmed. Uh, and to be honest, I think I'm looking forward to the end of the year. But uh, yeah, that's just a snapshot of kind of, uh, of what's coming. So, so if there's people listening, out there listening now who you know they've, they've seen something in the world they want to change and they've got an idea, uh, but they don't know where to start. What's what's one piece of advice you give someone like that? This sounds cliche, but it is true. You must remain ridiculously persistent and know your why, and reach out to people who have a lot more experience, uh, find mentors, and do so in a way that can make you really targeted. Like we're, we're laser focused in what we do, uh, which is kind of the antithesis to my personality because I tend to jump around and try different things. And God knows I have for a lot of my life, but this one, the doors are just kept opening. And I think if you have a good idea whose time has come, you will see the doors open and, but it's up to you to walk through them and to, that often takes a lot of hard work and persistence, but if you, my, my, to put it simply, do one thing and do it really, 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 really bloody well, because uh, you can't do everything well. And if you become laser focused, as an amazing uh, mentor of mine says in her work, uh, and they're doing maternal health work, really best practice service delivery in Uganda and anti-trafficking work in Nepal, they're like, she says, you know what, we are five miles deep and we're two centimeters wide in their, in their focus. And, you know, Individually, we can't fix the world, but collectively, we can. And so if we just focus on the things that we're deeply passionate about and are the best use of our privilege and the best use of our time and the skills and talents we have, then invariably over time, there's a high probability that that will lead to success. And success in this case will mean life-changing impact. Yeah, I think it's really good advice to you know, stay focused. Uh, I like to say, you know, don't half-ass a whole lot of things, just Yes, full ass one big thing, uh, and and do that really really well. So I prefer the uh, way you put it. <laughs> it's probably it's probably easy to remember. So, is there anything you'd like people to do after having listened to this podcast? Yeah, we we love you to shop Eichel Change brands because uh, they're going to be giving back a dollar with every sale. Go to the Facebook page of any brand who you'd love to see give back, and just tell them to become an Eichel Change brand. We're going to make that easy next year with a little link where people can can post. But in the meantime. Get noisy. Uh, business must become a force for good. And with the power of consumers, with the power of our genuine desire to want to create a better world, which I, I feel we're, we're all realizing now we're reaching an urgent time, then we can collectively um, create that change. So uh, shop the brands at iquachange.com and, uh, and harass the brands that aren't giving back yet and tell them to do so. And I, I uh, I think we can all become a part of the solution. So if, if people want to get in touch with you or um, yeah, we've got the iEqualsChange.com website, um, is there a, is, what's the best way to get in touch? Uh, best way is LinkedIn, actually, um, just under my name, Jeremy Meltzer. 
And um, yeah, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. We've got quite a bit going on there. So that's probably the best spot. Awesome. Great. All right. So so let's, let's wrap up. So it's what we call the Mad Minute, which is five questions in 60 seconds. So let's kick off. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Stay true to what your body tells you is the right thing to do and trust in it. Uh, what's your favorite business book? Uh, Losing My Virginity. Do you know who the author is? Uh, Richard Branson. Uh, favorite business tool or resource for delivering impact through your business? Uh, Trello is pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. Helps, helps us keep, keep our lives organized. Great. And we'll throw I equals change in there as well. Uh, what's your favorite quote? Be the change you wish to see. And if you could go back in time and give your 20-year-old self some advice, what would it be? <laughs> I think it would be just calm down a little bit and trust that things will make sense over time and perhaps to be more aware of my privilege than I was and and realize that in time I would be, things would start to make sense. Great. Awesome. So thanks for, uh, look, I think it's what you guys are doing is you know, a great business model. Uh, I think, you know, your point you made around, you know, social enterprises needing to make sure that, that they understand financially how they're going to be sustainable so they can deliver on their impact is a really important lesson for people to take on board. Uh, and I can't wait to see iEquals Change popping up on every uh, e-commerce site that I, uh, I'm on in the future. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, uh, yeah, pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Sometimes ideas are a bit like a fine wine. So they just need the right amount of time to mature. Hey, while you're here, I'd like to ask you a favour. One of the key tenets of trying to develop a new idea is to make sure your solution is helping your customers solve an important problem and producing a podcast is no different. So I'd really like to know some of the biggest challenges you are facing in terms of making the world a better place. It would mean a lot to me if you could take just a few minutes to put a simple survey which you can find at www.bluetribe.co forward slash survey. By doing this, you'll actually make something great happen in the world, literally. You'll have to check it out to see what I'm talking about. Also, make sure you subscribe, like, and share this episode. It does really make a difference. Coming up in the next episode. What we've seen over the past 40 years in the West is sort of this bottom-up approach to sustainability, you know, activism and, and the individual is the agent for change. China, they take the opposite approach. It's top-down. It's what I like to call eco-authoritarianism. So the government can flip the switch, like you said, off and on on anything that they want. The coming decades will see the world economy shift from west to east and north to south. Our guest in the next episode is an expert in doing business in China, and he sees opportunity for businesses to help create a more sustainable future by doing business in China, but only if they do it the right way. Well, that's it for another episode of the Good Business Podcast. Don't forget to complete that survey, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.